Hello, welcome to our online service. I am so glad that you're here. We're here today with Pastor Alan. He's bringing a message about God's abounding love and faithfulness as we continue to journey through this series about who God truly is. So make yourself comfortable. This is going to be a precious moment that we'll uh, spend together. And after the message, stick around for a conversation that KJ and I will have with Alan. So here's him with the message. Hey, Christ community, so glad that you are letting me be a part of your spiritual journey today. We are in the midst of a teaching series in which we're exploring this question, what is God really like? And in order to answer that question, we're, we're looking at this amazing passage of scripture in the Bible where God actually reveals himself to us. He gives us his personal, this personal intimate description of his heart, his character. And what we discover is that God is better than we ever imagined him to be. This incredibly important and seminal passage is found in Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7. As we've been saying all along in this series, these two verses are our ground zero for our understanding of who God is. They are incredibly important, not only in our experience of God, but also in our sharing with the world what God is like. So many people have this really inaccurate view of God, and so we get to be his ambassadors to let them know what he's really like. Okay, let's look at these two verses. And he, God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now this passage is amazing in terms of what it communicates to us about God's heart. Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, don't get hung up on that last phrase about children being punished for their parents and grandparents' sin. We're going to unpack that last phrase in a couple weeks, and you're going to see that it is not some divine form of child abuse, but it actually fits well with the other attributes of God described in this passage. Okay, so in this series, we are going phrase by phrase and unpacking this incredible description of God. Today, we find ourselves right in the middle of this passage where God says that he is abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. So let's unpack this further. This word translated love is an incredibly significant word in the Hebrew Bible. It is used over 200 times. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And what makes hesed such an important and significant word is that there is no one single English word that accurately encompasses or communicates what this word means. The, the NIV translates this love, but what kind of love are we talking about? I love sweet tea. I love playing golf. I mean, many of our, our Spotify playlists are filled with songs about, you know, love, you know, people being in love. So when we use the word love here, we don't really know what it means. And this is where digging into the Hebrew is so helpful. What we discover is that this word has said is multifaceted. It is multidimensional. It, in, it encapsulates not just one or even two, but three aspects of love. So first in this word has said is the idea of affection tender affection or kindness. This is why some translations will translate this word loving kindness. They just, they invented a word, hyphenated word to try to capture this loving kindness. So it's describing a tender affection toward another person. 
All right. But hesed is more than that. Secondly, it refers to commitment, to devotion. This is why this word is sometimes translated steadfast love or unfailing love or loyal love. It's describing a deep attachment to another person, a loyalty, an enduring faithfulness, like an aging husband tenderly caring for his wife who has dementia and no longer remembers who he is. But every day he sits with her and holds her hand and cares for her. That's hesed. In scriptural terms, hesed is, that this aspect of hesed is describing what's often referred to as a covenant. A covenant is not a contract. A covenant is a commitment to another person that is not dependent upon the other person's faithfulness. God enters into a covenant with us through the blood of Jesus. And that covenant is based completely upon Jesus' obedience, not ours. That, again, that's hesed. That's a loyal, covenantal, devoted love. And then third, hesed carries with it this meaning of abundant generosity, what we often refer to as grace or mercy. Uh, Michael Card, um, who's a musician and a theologian, he, he wrote an entire book on this word hesed. And here's how he defines hesed. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Hesed describes this abundant, generous love being poured out upon someone who doesn't deserve it. Okay, so take all three of these ideas, tender affection, unwavering commitment, and extravagant generosity, and you put them together and you have the meaning of hesed. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, oh, a Venn diagram would work. Remember those Venn diagrams that we, you know, we, we saw in high school math or whatever? I've never used a Venn diagram in a sermon before, but I, it totally applies here. So check this diagram out. See, notice Hesed is where all three of these elements overlap. It's where affection and commitment and generosity overlap. That's Hesed. This is what God is like. He is a God of Hesed. <clears throat> now, it's very clear in Exodus 34 that God wants to emphasize this particular attribute, which is why he uses this word twice in this passage. It's the only descriptor here that's, that's repeated. Notice God says here, I'm abounding in Hesed. And then he says, I maintain Hesed 2000. So to repeat something like that in Hebrew is a way of intentionally adding emphasis. So God is emphasizing his Hesed and he wants us to know the breadth of this love, which is why he says that he maintains love to thousands. He's not just talking about thousands of people. That would be not be that big of a deal for God. The context here, as well as in other Old Testament passages, imply thousands of generations. In other words, forever. God wants us to understand the breadth and the length of his hesed. And this is why so often in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, God's hesed, his love, is described in these vast immeasurable terms. For instance, Psalm 103 verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love, his hesed for those who fear him. How far are the heavens above the earth? Well, as high as anyone could imagine. Well, that's how big and vast God's love, his hesed is. 
You know, it makes me think of Paul's description, his prayer in Ephesians chapter three. This is the New Testament. And Paul writes, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, Paul is describing God's hesed, his love. It is abounding. It is vast. It is higher and wider and deeper and longer than anything we could imagine. It is overflowing in its fullness, its abundance. I mean, you can tell that the biblical writers are struggling to find words to describe, to fully describe God's hesed. It's as vast as the ocean. It's as expansive as the heavens. And here's what God wants to make sure we understand. This amazing, indescribable love is actually directed towards you and me. It is directed towards us. We are in the middle of this ocean of God's hesed this waterfall of his hesed. He has directed his love towards us, his tender affection, his unwavering commitment, his extravagant generosity. We are the undeserving recipients of this amazing, committed, generous, kind-hearted love. Now, I want you to notice what God is doing here. He is clearly contrasting who he is, this has said, with the gods, lower, small g, the gods who were worshipped in the ancient Near East, gods who cared nothing for humans, gods that, you know, we had to manipulate and they were manipulative and all that stuff. And look, when we bring it in today, this description also is a vivid contrast with the gods of our world today, the gods of money, the god of sexual pleasure, the god of fashion and fame. All of these gods promise to satisfy us if we worship them. And people are, we're, our whole society is worshiping these gods, but we see the result of that all around us. The, the emptiness, the brokenness, the lack of joy and satisfaction, the, the relational devastation. These gods don't care about us. They don't care about the impact that our worship of them has on our family or on our own well-being. You know, kind of like the, the Wizard of Oz, you know, when the, when the curtain, remember that scene? When the curtain is pulled back, we see what the gods of this age are really like. There is no kindness, no commitment to us, no generosity towards us. These gods don't know how to love. They don't know how to love Well, in contrast to all the gods over the centuries and in the present, God alone is a God of hesed. Yahweh, who revealed himself in Exodus 34, this is what he's really like. Now, it's one thing to talk about hesed, you know, like we have been, but it's another thing to actually see it in action. Well, thankfully, we have a powerful, vivid picture of Hesed provided for us by Jesus in a story that he told in the book of Luke, chapter 15. So in this story, there was a loving father 
who had two sons. And the younger son one day went to his dad and demanded his share of the inheritance, which was a huge slap in the face to his father. Basically, the son was saying, I wish you were dead. Could I just get your money right now? And so the father divided his inheritance between the two sons. He gave the younger son his portion. And so that younger son moved out. He squandered the entire amount on partying and wild living. And then he ran out of money. When he ran out of money, all his mooching friends disappeared. And he ended up all alone. And, and he finally found a job feeding pigs. And he was so hungry that he, the pig food started to look really appealing. Um, and, and, and Jesus says that in that moment, this younger son came to his senses. He realized that in my father's house, even the servants get fed well and they have shelter. So he decided to go back to his father, but not as a son. He knew he had already blown that. So he decided to go back to his father and offer himself as a servant, as an employee. And so he heads back to his father's house, not knowing what to expect, but assuming there would be anger and condemnation and shame. Well, when he came into view of the house, he saw his father standing on the back porch, looking out into the distance, looking for his son to return. And when the father saw his son in the distance, he pulled up his robe. The father pulled up his robe and he ran to meet him. And when he got there, the father embraced his son and kissed him. See, that's the tender affection of Hesed a heartfelt, genuine affection for us, even when we failed. And then when, when the son tried to give his prepared speech, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Um, and and did I, I would just be a servant and all of that. Um, the father wouldn't even listen. Um, and he gave him, the father gave his son the family ring and he called him my son. See, this is the covenant loyalty of Hesed, an unconditional, unwavering, faithful, loyal love, a bond from which even our failures can't remove us. And then the father said, bring my son a robe and sandals for his feet. Let's kill the fattened calf and celebrate. See, this is the lavish generosity of Hesed, the pouring out of generous love on one who doesn't deserve it. So is this how you envision God? Is this how you think he feels about you? Is this what you perceive his heart to be towards you? A heart that is filled with tender affection for you and an unwavering commitment and devotion to you and a lavish grace and generosity poured out upon you, even in your mistakes and failures. You see, if that is not how we perceive God's heart towards us is, if that's not how we perceive that, then we're missing out. We're missing out on the wonder and the fullness of God's hesed, his amazing love. God says to us, this is who I am. This is what he's saying in Exodus 34. This is who I am. I'm abounding in Hesed. I, I, I maintain this Hesed to thousands of generations. I long for you to live in my love. It's not about your performance. It's about my character. This is who I am. Okay, now, just because God is this way 
doesn't mean we automatically live in this reality. In fact, in the parable Jesus told, the story doesn't end with the younger son returning home and being celebrated. Jesus tells us there's an older brother. There's an elder brother in this story. And when the older brother arrives home and he hears this music and dancing going on, he asks a servant, what is up? What is going on? And when, when the servant told him that his younger brother had come home and they were celebrating his return, this older brother got angry and he refused to go into the party. So his father, who is filled with Hesed, right, went out to reason with his angry son. And then the son said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. You never even gave me a young goat so I could go celebrate with my friends. I don't know what it is with the goat and celebrating, but whatever that was in that culture, right? You didn't ever let me party with my friends. But he says, when this son of yours comes home, who has squandered half of your inheritance, you celebrate him. And so look at what the father says in response. My son, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, the, the, this older brother had the father's hesed. He had his love, but he was not living in the fullness of that love. He was living as if his father was an employer. I've slaved with you for, I've slaved for you all these years. That's the language of an employee, right? I've slaved for you, I've obeyed all this stuff. But the father says, my son, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. In other words, you could have taken a goat and celebrated with your friends anytime you wanted. All that I have is yours. Enjoy my love. Enjoy my said. So did the son change his mind and go celebrate his brother's return with music and dancing? We don't know. We don't know. Jesus ends the story with the father's words being spoken, but with no resolution, which is a brilliant way of leaving the question to us. Will you and I, will we choose to live in and dance in and celebrate our Father's, Heavenly Father's incredible has said towards us? Or will we view God as an employer and live our lives trying to earn what is already ours? That's a really important question, one that is very personal to me. So often I find myself living as the elder brother where it's all about my performance. It's all about my obedience. And when I live that way, I miss out on the music and dancing, the overflowing joy of God's incredible love towards me. And it also hinders my ability to truly love others like the elder brother. I view people then through the lens of judgment rather than grace and love. Can you imagine the impact in our lives and in our relationships and our hearts and all of that if we lived in the abundant, enduring, tender love of God for us? If we lived with that as a continual, heartfelt reality, that would make a huge impact. Well, that's not the only descriptive word we see in this passage that we're looking at today. It's linked with another word. So God's has said 
is actually linked to another word in the Hebrew, another attribute. So look again at verse 6. God says to us that he is abounding in love, has said, and faithfulness. Okay, so let's look at this word faithfulness. This is the Hebrew word emet. This word is not an emotional word. It is a word that speaks of truth. In fact, this is the word from which we get our word amen. Technically speaking, the word amen does not mean, okay, so now you know my prayer is over, amen. Uh, No, the word amen literally means so be it or that's true. I remember years ago uh, having the opportunity, the privilege really of speaking at a predominantly black church in Austin, Texas. And as I was speaking, giving my message, people started saying amen and not quietly. It was loud, you know, and, and, and man, it was, it, it sort of freaked me out initially and it just kept happening. After a couple of minutes, I started to like it. I was like feeding off the energy. It was so encouraging and affirming because in that context, shouting amen meant I agree with that. That's true. Amen. That is so good. That's true. See, that's what the word amen means. And it's also what this word emet, this Hebrew word emet is rooted in. It's this idea of truth. But here in Exodus 34, it's in the context of relationship. And this is why the the NIV version translates this faithfulness. God is absolutely faithful. Now, here's the deal. We sing about this truth. Great is your faithfulness. We often declare God is faithful, but what does it really mean? Ever thought about that? What does it really mean? I don't know about you, but this idea of God being faithful has caused me um, some internal wrestling in my own life over the years. How is God faithful to a family whose teenager died in a car accident? How is God faithful to a devout follower of his who is gradually losing their cognition as Alzheimer's eats away at their brain? How is God faithful to the believers in in Jesus in the Ukraine as Russia continues to pummel their houses and and, and, and churches with bombs? I mean, it's easy to speak of God's faithfulness when things are going well, when we get a job, when, when the tests come back nev- negative, right? But what does God's faithfulness mean when we lose our job or when the test comes back positive? What does God's faithfulness mean in the midst of suffering? In other words, is God's faithfulness only measured in terms of how well we can tie a bow on the end of our story? Or is it more than that? You know, as, as I found myself wrestling with this question over the years and recently, um, I'm often reminded of a passage of scripture that's focused on the theme of faith. What does it mean to live by faith? Um, it's found in Hebrews chapter 11, and the entire chapter describes multitudes of people who live by faith in just different ways, different examples of that. So in the midst of this description of people living by faith, the author then writes these words, beginning in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Amen and amen, right? This is amazing. God is powerful. He works miracles. He is faithful. 
But the passage doesn't stop there. Let's continue. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. Notice what he says then. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. These people were also serving a faithful God, and yet their lives were falling apart. They didn't receive what had been promised. That's what it says here. So how could we say God is faithful? How could that be faithful on God's part? Well, look again at verse 40. Yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us. They didn't receive in this life what had been promised. God had planned something better, a heavenly kingdom where all things will be restored and made right. So these people, as the author writes, were all commended for their faith. They continued to trust the faithfulness of God, knowing that, it, that his vantage point included all of eternity. So when we hear in Exodus 34 about God's faithfulness, does that mean that in this life, every story has a happy ending? That God always alleviates suffering and rescues us from pain, that he always heals our, our diseases. No, we, we all know from reality that that is not what this can possibly mean. So what does this word faithful really mean? And in, in, in my study of this word, I believe a more accurate word to use here is the word trustworthy. God is absolutely trustworthy. He can be trusted even when our lives are falling apart, even when people are suffering injustice, even when our prayers for healing are not answered, even when people are mocking us for our faith or whatever. He is trustworthy and he has an eternal timeline upon which to fulfill his promises to us. His timeline is not limited to this amount of time that we're here on earth. He has an eternity in which to fulfill his promises. So when you put these two words together, has said and a met, as God does here in Exodus 34, you end up with an incredibly beautiful and powerful and hopeful combination. Our God is a God who loves us with a tender affection and unwavering commitment and lavish generosity. And he is a God who is absolutely trustworthy. He will keep his promises. If not in this life, then in the life to come, the life that truly matters. Now, the most complete picture of these two words in action occurred on a cross outside of Jerusalem, right? Where Jesus lavishly poured out his hesed by choosing to die in our place so that we could experience the love of God. And then he rose from the dead to reveal that God is absolutely trustworthy and that death itself cannot stop him from keeping his promises. No wonder John tells us in John 1:14 that Jesus is full of grace and truth. That's the Greek way 
of translating the Hebrew words hesed and emet, grace and truth. Jesus is the fullest expression of God's hesed and his trustworthiness, which points us, let's bring this home, this points us to two critical questions for us, two all-important responses that enable us to experience God in this way. First critical question is this, will you rest in God's amazing has said for you? He really does love you. His love is higher than the heavens and deeper than the ocean. Will you let his love surround you and fill you? Second question, will you trust him no matter what you're going through, knowing that he is a promise keeper who has eternity to work with in terms of, in, in order to prove his trustworthiness? Will you and I, will we trust him? Let's pray together. So God's has said towards you is covenantal. When you are in Christ, when you are in a relationship with Jesus, nothing can separate you from his love. So let me just ask, as you're in an attitude of prayer, have, have you placed your trust in Jesus' work on the cross so that you can experience his unwavering, unending love for you. If you've not done that, I encourage you right now to, I'll just lead you in a prayer where you can invite Jesus into your heart and you can place your trust in him. So just pray along with me. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner and I'm separated from your life. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus, you gave your life for me to establish this covenant relationship with me. It's not based on my work. It's based on your work. And so I choose to place my trust in you right now. I place my trust in you. I bring to you all of my sin and failure and doubts and fears and I leave that with you. And in exchange, I receive your life and your forgiveness in the very presence of your spirit coming to live in me. God, thank you for everyone who prayed that prayer. I pray they would grow now in this amazing hesed relationship with you, experiencing and walking in your love. Now, for all of us who are watching let me just ask this question as you're praying and reflecting, what would it look like? What would it look like for you to open your heart afresh to God's hesed love for you? Let's just take a few moments right now and I want you to imagine his love washing over you. Like a waterfall. Or maybe you want to place yourself, imagine yourself in the prodigal son's story. Can you envision the father, father God running to meet you and wrapping his arms around, of love around you? Let's let him do that. 
let him wrap his arms of love around you and imagine him calling you my son or my daughter and celebrating you. Just enjoy his delight in you. Let it bring your heart joy as you reflect on and experience his hesed towards you. Now let's take a moment and reflect on and open our heart to God's and met his trustworthiness. He is absolutely trustworthy, even in the midst of life's difficulties and struggles and suffering. So Lord, would you help us trust you? Even when we're not seeing certain promises fulfilled, even when things are not going the way we had hoped or planned, would you help us trust you? Because you are trustworthy. And help us fix our eyes on a better kingdom, one that you are preparing for us. We love you. We worship you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's have a conversation about this message. Here's my first thought right off the bat. I know, so we were having this conversation off camera about how a lot of times when we're talking about God's, the attributes of God, and then we kind of turn into, now what can I do to be like God because we're Jesus followers, and then we miss the talking, just the, just camping on who God actually is because we want to apply how can I be that way, which is great, nothing wrong with that. But the whole time you're talking, all I could think about is how much we are not that way, <laughs> how much we're not that level of loyalty, that level of faithfulness and commitment, and, and not to, to go away from let me meditate on who God is and how can I be that way, but I think understanding that our nature and how we're wired is foreign to this level of love and commitment that helps me understand you know, to think what he is not, to understand what he is. So when you talk about the parable of the prodigal son, like, yeah, because we don't understand how to receive that kind of love. We don't understand how to give that kind of love. I don't know. I would say, I think, here's the deal, though. I think we're inspired by it. <clears throat> yes. And that shows us that it actually is within us. Hmm. We're inspired when we see Hesed. We're, uh -huh. we're, it inspires something in us. And so I almost prefer to think about it that way, that that story, even if I'm not doing it perfectly with my wife or whatever, it's inspiring something in me. And that tells me that this is a core part of God, the image of God in us, right? I like seeing it that way too. Because that we want to be more generous. I want to be that kind of devoted yeah. love that way, you uh -huh. know, and with tender affection. We all want that. And so maybe that, rather than thinking about it as a, well, God's like this and I'm not. It's like, oh, but it inspires us. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure inspires. But I was just thinking of all the times that I would resonate with both the sons. Like, I don't know how to even receive this yeah. or I don't know how to give this. Uh, uh, all right. So mm -hmm. think about that. Uh -huh. I've been 
talking to several people and it's been hard because the things that they bring up about the sermon series, mm -hmm. uh, it's how do I apply this? Uh -huh. um, so how do I call upon God? How do I like, and, and I was driving here today and I was, I was just thinking like somehow the idea uh, of Sabbath falls uh, mm. got in here mm. that the goal is not to invoke God it, the goal is not to become God but it's kind of like God shows himself and then invites Sabbath <laughs> it's like come and enjoy, enjoy. me don't, oh. don't try to uh, uh, or some, yes. I don't know like it's like yeah. Yeah. I love that and that's I think that's so why good. one of the books we've been reading a little bit and it's a great book on some of this stuff, but the tendency at the end of each chapter is sort of, now because God is loving, you need to be loving. Now because God is compassionate, are you being compassionate? Yeah. And there's a part of me, my heart just sinks when that happens because right. my, what I'm, that's the, for so, my heart yeah. of this whole series has been, can we just sit in and experience yes. a God like this rather than always turning into turning it into now I gotta do that. Yeah, it's like this shame and guilt. Right. Like here's God and here's you. Exactly. And instead of mm -hmm. here's God. Yes. Wow, he's yeah. amazing. <laughs> right. Let's just enjoy yeah. him. Yeah. And that that nails it. And I love yeah. the idea yeah. of if that's Sabbath or whatever it looks like, where we actually create space, and that's why some of the prayers at the end of the sermon, I've tried to create space for us to actually experience his hesed or experience yep. right. his compassion using our imagination or whatever to help us l experience this. And just that's yeah. the application. I just yeah. want to know God is like that and enjoy him. And yeah. that like brings us back to the big simply of the desire to see his glory. Yes. It isn't yeah. to see our depravity in his glory. Mm -hmm. It's, can I see you? Show, yeah, That's show it. Show me your glory. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that'll change everything, yeah. right? Yeah. But hopefully it is inspiring, like you said, and it does, it moves my heart and maybe naturally to take action, but I am very intrigued by what you said to not, hurry to that now I want to be like Jesus and start the doing which I personally tend to go there and miss out on the just yep. enjoying like what you said here's God because yeah that's I think if we were able to experience more of all of these attributes of God that we've been thinking about like what an incredible difference that would make oh, just everything. in our relationship with him and our spirituality and everything. And it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be, oh, I got to do. Right. It would just be so, <laughs> we would be so enamored by it, impacted by who he is, that it would just start to change us. Yeah. Without, oh, God's compassion. I better be compassionate. Am I compassionate? You know, that, uh, that just takes the life out of it, I feel like. Yeah. And it probably isn't the point. I, <laughs> no. I, I mean, the whole passage is about God saying, here's who I am. Get exactly. to know me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. God isn't I saying, agree. here's who you, you are. Or like, you it's like, here's me. And I'm like big and <laughs> speaking in fire and thunder. Like, yeah. you know, like there's something there. Yeah. So. And then so that's weird. so cool because when he does, the people are terrified in Exodus. Yeah. 
because he has that cloud, all that stuff, right? That's what they've seen him. But then when he does finally reveal himself, it's all this tender, I'm compassionate, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm tender-hearted. I mean, it's just so amazing. <laughs> this God that they're all terrified of, he's revealing these yeah. very personal, tender attributes, which is yeah. so cool. And also that makes me think of the point that you make about the having the happy ending and the tying a bow and how... That was good. Uh, it, it, <laughs> like that was really Yes, yeah. and how we may miss who God truly is because we have this other expectation of what we think he should be. And just like what you're saying, people thought God was something. He was like, but this is who I am. And mm -hmm. just our, uh, the parallel of how is that true for us today? What do I think he is or what he should be? And the expectations we create, and then we miss out on who he is because we think that you, have you all know, the, the yeah, it has to to be easy, but he never promised that. What did he promise? He's faithful to those promises, but there are things he never promised, but we hold them accountable because mm. you know the whole happy ending thing. Yeah, yeah. People that are turning from him because of this misconception of uh, or mis. Uh, expectations. Yeah, I think a lot of Christians, I think what you're saying too, when we define faithfulness in terms of the happy ending to every circumstance, right. I think we're missing, we're missing the point, right? I know a promise, there's a promise Jesus gave in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. Yep. You know, we don't focus on that promise. But So what does it look like to experience a faith trustworthy God? Yeah in the midst of that. And that's why I think move not moving away from the word faithful, but I do think we need to rethink right. what we mean by it. Because yes. when we say, hey, God is so faithful, are we saying, oh, he's going to fix, he's faithful to fix all these things that I'm going through? Or is it about his character and his trustworthiness, even in the midst of difficult things? Right. Yeah. I can't blame people for thinking that, though I think ab about how the church has been. Uh, so, like, the church that personally I grew up going to, they kind of, like, promised. I, I, you know, mm -hmm. so are things hard? Are things broken? Here's the answer. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, come to the altar. And so I think people... People accepted the the very simple altar calls to have the happy ending. Yep. And then because that hasn't happened, uh, it's kind of like that isn't the thing I signed up for. Yep. They get disillusioned, and then it yep. becomes about God. Well, He's not faithful, and so then our faith gets eroded. Um, and I think we have to we have a, we need a deeper understanding of what his trustworthiness, what that really means, and that Hebrews eleven passage. Right. You know, we like the first part, we don't like the second. Part. <laughs> right. Is it possible then that people uh, people think that they experience God but haven't? I mean, like mm. the thing they signed up. Up for actually 
hadn't been his character and hadn't been his promise. Uh, and they actually haven't t turned their back on God. They've turned their back on something else. I think so. It's the formula. If I right. do A and B, God's going to do C. And so right. we, we will never admit that we have that formula in our right. mind. But the minute something bad happens, we immediately go back to that. But I've been going to church. I've been doing this, and I'm faithfully, and how could this happen? You know, th that's right. where we go, and I think, which is natural. I'd go the same place, uh -huh. but it exposes that formulaic right. approach that I think we've either been taught or we just kind of assume this is how life works. Right. Yeah, that's good. This is what God's faithfulness looks like. He's going to heal. When we pray for healing, he's going to do that. When we, you know, and, mm -hmm. and um, I think it's... Uh, I don't, I'm not sure that's what he's saying. Right, there. which ironically turns... Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's hmm. that, that brings us back again to the very point for this whole sermon series is to, to actually see God so that people can pursue him. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Compared to a cultural, um, cultural interpretation of who God... Uh, yeah, um, mm -hmm. or a religious interpretation. Right. Oh... Over the summer, I was talking to someone um, who does not have faith. He's like this vigilant atheist, and he was doing this whole thing A about vigilant, yeah, atheist. like vigilant, like, <laughs> and you know, talking about you know how could I believe in a God who da 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 and so for everything he brought up. I thought I don't believe in a God who da 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 da, da everything, and so then I thought he's correct. <laughs> I, I, I don't believe in believe that in God that either. God either, and so I'm on the same team here. <laughs> um, and sometimes who God has per been perceived to be right. has to. Die. die exactly yes. before the actual God can come up and <laughs> yes. show Himself. That's mm -hmm. so good. Yep. And so this guy was just perplexed on how I could agree and be a pastor, um, but it's all the characteristics that he brought up had been horrible, and they aren't a biblical interpretation of who yeah. God is. Yep. And yeah. so our sermon <laughs> series about like how. How God is is compassionate and slow to anger and faithful, and here are here are like the heartbeats of God. Anything apart from that, it probably isn't Him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had thought about that when I, and I don't know. I mean, I think there are certain passages that are weightier than others, right? I mean, not every passage has the same weight in Scripture, and I look at this passage and I feel like this is a. It's a foundational understanding, and yeah. we need to look, and, and Jesus also, he, he reveals what God is like. Right. So those two things, I think we have to look through, because I'm sure your friend will maybe pulls out a scripture from some book in the Old Testament of, you know, this God commanding people to be killed and all this stuff. See, he's not, and I think we have to I, somehow figure out if this is the bedrock, God revealing himself, we have to view those other passages somehow through this lens right. and, and, and try to understand that if this is who God is, that's the bedrock. Yeah. And maybe we're not understanding something here. 
that doesn't seem to fit, but it doesn't, it's not God switching. Sometimes he's compassionate. Sometimes he's not. No, he's always compassionate. Mm -hmm. So how do we? It's Mm -hmm. an act of compassion. It comes from um, a bunch of those things that happen are born from a heart of compassion. I I truly, I mean, like, I, 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 I think that people try so hard to say, here's the things that are good and here's the things that are bad. And so death is bad and the life is good. And so then the things that contribute to death are bad, the things that contribute to life are good. And there's a passage about how the angel of death, he comes from heaven. (laughs) And so it's kind of like, hold a second. The angel of death's home, he has a home in heaven. Yikes. How how does that, you know what I mean? Like, so in God's hands, could death be a good good thing thing and a compassionate thing? I don't know. I'm, I don't know, but I'm just coming at it from, from sure. this like posture of he technically saved everyone in the act of dying and de- death itself. Mm. Um, so is death good or is it bad? Whose hands does it fall in? Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's the filters that we put in. You, you right. put in if it's so taking what the example you said, getting a random passage in the Old Testament with the wrong filter, you're going to see something different than reading the same passage with the correct filter of what what all the foundation of what we know of who God is, and then you'll see it for what it truly is. And I think that's that's part of the reason why I was so passionate about this particular teaching series, because I think people do look at the Old Testament and think God's really ticked off. And then the New Testament, we have a different God. And what is, is he the same God? Is he a different God? Right. And I think what we see in Exodus 34, when God reveals himself, like, ah, he's the same. Yeah. <laughs> this is Jesus. Exodus 34 describes Jesus. So then we figure out, can we look at the rest of Scripture yes. through that lens, yeah. the same God, yeah. and try to... It's not easy, but we still have to wrestle with these things. But through that lens, rather than pulling this past, oh, he's, he's mad, he's always angry, oh, and then he turns nice in the New Testament. No, no, he's the same God, revealed himself in the same way. Yeah. And then let's wrestle with those passages that are... It's harder to see from our vantage point, those attributes. Yeah. And I just got to bring up something kind of fun before this kind of ends. Um, So in (laughs) Acts chapter 2, all the people are coming to celebrate Pentecost. And Pentecost, that is this Jewish feast day that comes from uh, the time that God says, here's who I am. Um, like God showing his face. That's Jewish Pentecost. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. And so Acts chapter 2, um, they're, they're gathering in the, the upper room. There's the sound of wind. They're there celebrating Pentecost. There's tongues of fire in their head, similar to Sinai when fire descended. And, and that it embodied them. Um, the compassion, the 
grace the Holy Spirit for the first time. That is um, cool. Yeah, it's it shows. I'm like, I gotta tell someone this. That's so just so like, good. yeah. So. And yeah. we gotta end it there. Yeah. Yes. That's right. so have fun with that. <laughs> That's Thank awesome. Thank you for joining yeah. this conversation. Yeah. That was good. Mm -hmm. Good job. <laughs> we'll see you next time. <laughs>